We're Victorian bushfire survivors. We know fire. With flames reaching 1,100 degrees, the wave of radiant heat can kill from 200 metres away. If you knew fire, you'd prepare your home. You'd know when to leave, where to go and how to get there. We know how important it is to plan and prepare. How well do you know fire? Plan. Act. Survive. Go to vic.gov.au slash nofire. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. Millions of despairing men, women and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the The kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Today we have our guest Paul Askoff. He is from the UK, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about the paranormal and UFOs. He's written a book, um, and I'm going to let him deliver his own bio and tell you a little bit about himself and and his book and other stuff. And uh, I'm sure it's going to be a very interesting session. So without further ado, Paul, welcome into the garden. How are you today? I'm excellent. Thank you, Jeff, for having me. Now, thank you for coming on. It's we're honored and privileged. So, yeah, t- tell the folks a, a little bit about yourself, and then you can uh, start your story wherever you would like. Okay, thank you. Um, I've been medical all my working life. Um, I started as a nurse, and then occupational health nurse. Then went into the army as a medic. Did thirteen years with that, and then came out and was a paramedic. I did that for 28 years until my recent retirement. So I've always been medical. Uh, The last seven years, I was like a a clinical advisor, you would call it, uh, as part of sort of a management role. 
However, now I've said that, um, for me, I've always been interested in the paranormal and UFOs. And it was UFOs that actually kick-started my interest. And then it branched out and I've been 50 years, or more than 50 years, looking at the subjects and associated subjects with them ever since. Very interesting stuff. So, yeah, so I guess we should start at the start. Okay. Um, very briefly, uh, I was the normal child growing up, quite a strict Victorian upbringing. Um, no interest really in uh, UFOs or the paranormal at all. And what happened in our routine at the time, our father was quite strict. He wasn't cruel, but he was very strict and you certainly did as you were told. And my brother and I, our last job of the day was to go out, take our dogs out. And we had a disabled neighbor next time. He only had one lung. Take his dogs out too. Come back, we'd put the dogs away, say goodnight to our parents, go to bed. That was the routine. This day, my brother and I, I was just had my 11th birthday. We're talking a lot of years ago. Uh, and he was nine. We put the dogs away. My father was in the front garden. Now, our home was on the edge of a very small village out in the countryside, very rural. And we literally walked from our front garden into fields. So as children, we grew up in the fields and we had spectacular views of the night sky then, you know, quite flat terrain. There was no hills, you know, so you could see a long way. Anyway, this night we'd come in. My father was in the front garden. He sat us down at either side of him. I was to his left, my brother to the right. And what happened was, as we were looking due east, our home faced due east, the sky to the north, almost in a direct line in front of us, was completely covered in cloud. And then it finished with this really straight edge of this cloud. And then the southern half of the sky was completely clear. Now it was September time, it was just dusk, getting dark, and the larger constellations had come out. Now, I'm talking 1968, so there certainly wasn't the air traffic that there is now. There wasn't the ambulance helicopters, the police helicopters. We didn't have any of those. And as my father's, the three of us were looking at the sky, my father's pointing to this star, and literally as the three of us were looking up, two UFOs came out of this bank of cloud really fast and then stopped dead. And the three of us were like, mouths agape looking at the sky and they were just a brilliant they were perfectly circular brilliant pearly white light one of them slightly to one side and slightly behind the other they stayed the same relative position to each other but didn't there was nothing apparently joining them at all and i would say probably uh from your neck of the woods as the size of a sort of a dime at arm's length so there was quite large uh, and the one that was nearest to the cloud, you could actually see the light from it reflecting off the surface of the cloud, off the edge of this bank of cloud. Now, as they came out of the cloud and they stopped, I got this quite clear, what I can only describe as a friendly masculine voice in my head. And it was immediately that it was, oops, we hadn't meant to have been seen. We hadn't meant to have come out of the cloud. And I got that. <laughs> quite clearly in my head. Uh, now, don't ask me why I thought it was friendly or why I thought it was masculine, but that was the feeling I got with it. Very clear. 
and then they were still completely still for a few seconds there was no apparent rotation or noise whatsoever no lights or anything like that and then immediately they were moving very fast going away from us and they maintained the same spatial you know distance between them and the same relative position they never varied at all but one thing i did notice was as they moved away it was like they had a, a corona like an atmosphere covering them and as they were moving there was this tiniest little sort of teardrop shape at the back of them now when they were still they were perfectly circular but as they moved they had this tiny teardrop and we both we watched the three of us just watch them go in a dead straight line almost level with this bank of cloud and again as the edge of the cloud was sort of undulating if you were uh, as they got closer to it you could see the light from them reflecting off the surface of the cloud and we just watched them until they disappeared out of sight in the distance two questions i mean the reason i giggled earlier wasn't uh, it was because you said you, you're not sure why it didn't it, didn't, it sounded not malevolent well, I, you know, we, we didn't mean to be uh, spotted. I mean, it almost seems, I mean, obviously they were unconcerned. They didn't feel threatened, but it's almost like, you know, if, if you know, somebody is sort of spying on you, but you know them so that when you turn around, you wouldn't be scared. And there was no menace in that. It's, it's like, oopsie, sorry. So obviously they were unconcerned, but the, it didn't sound like something that was malevolent. The other thing, um, uh, the teardrop are, are is that, the propulsion or is that just from perspective you could you could tell the the vessel's shape was more oblong than circle no it was it was definitely for me in my opinion looking at them they remained perfectly circular it was the atmosphere they were creating around them as they moved it as it sloughed off if you like created the teardrop shape behind them as they moved away from us Okay, not necessarily propulsion, but maybe some of uh, some effect of the movement on Correct. the yeah. atmosphere, whether it's from moisture or, or displacement or whatever. Do you think the cl the cloud was then artificial, like a cover? Difficult to say, but it was quite a thick cloud and quite extensive. So whether they obviously knew that and they were just using that, but that was just the impression that I got. And again, I've interviewed people. I've, I've worked with Bufora for many years. Um, was an investigator for them and so you do interview a lot of people and you get both sides of the coin where people have this now whether it's intentional or not that's the thing whether there's any intent behind it and they get this malevolent feeling and people are g genuinely terrified I'm sorry did you say Bureau 4? Bufora, the British UFO Research Association Okay, so yeah, I, the, like yeah. the MUFON is the American equivalent, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, well, that, that's good because so the audience knows uh, who we're talking about or what agency. Yeah, are. Sure. Okay, very good. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's fine. And we, I mean, we, the three of us stood there or sat there rather, mouths agape in complete silence, just watching until they disappeared out of sight, and nobody said anything. And my father was actually the first to speak, and Neve. I have to say, he did his national service after the war with the Royal Air Force. So he was used to aircraft and things. And the first thing he said was, well, there's nothing that we have that can do that. Hmm. Uh, and it was it, it was just one of those things where it was never mentioned afterwards. But at the time, it was so, for want of a better term, obviously alien. It was something so obviously bizarre and something not from this earth that... 
I wanted to know then. Why don't I know about it? Why isn't it on the news? Why isn't it in the newspapers? You know, um, you know, people just don't talk about it. And it was so, to me, it was so blatantly obvious there in the sky where anybody could look at it. And so from that moment on, that's what got me into it. Wow. It, it, well, so the folks know this when this show airs is not the same day it's recording. We're re recording October 10th, 2021. Um, and just about a week, week and a half ago, it was actually caught on video and confirmed as unknown origin, a blue orb in the sky. So if anyone wants to look that up, I believe October 4th, 2021 is where the search, but you can go on the, the show's Garden of Doom's uh, Facebook page. It's not a group, it's a page, and search for October 4th. You'll find a link to that, that article, and it's a, there's a video too, so you can see it for yourself. And it does sound, you know, similar to this. Uh, you, you didn't say blue, but something might look different at night than it looks in the day. And this was a daylight one. Uh, there's also other video that actually, or photos from probably several months earlier that actually my my uh, girlfriend and and for the purposes of the recording world she's known as la sicaria took she took photos of these two lights um sort of around the sun and they moved and they didn't move like stars or uh planes or helicopters or anything like that and there's photos of them unfortunately she didn't video it but apparently that same date around the world there were lots of sightings of the same thing and these were certainly smaller than dime size but I mean, again, just a solid white light. So if you look on the page and, and search back, you'll find not only lots of interesting articles, but those photos as well. And that story about the orb, which again, the, the video is there and the photos are there of the earlier sighting that was actually a, a sort of a close encounter of the, uh, I guess the third kind, one, one step removed from me. So anyway, without further ado, let's let uh, Mr. Oskoff continue his his story. Thank you, Jeff. Um, yeah, um, what happened after that? I obviously that spurred me on. Then I wanted to know. But in those days, there was no such thing as the internet, or nobody had cell phones or anything, and it was a case of catching local transport into the larger cities because your local small villages and towns. They wouldn't have anything. The libraries didn't stock any books on UFOs or anything like that. So you had to get use, get you know, get out on your feet and go to the cities to even find a bookstore that may be able to order a book about UFOs and things. So that's how I got into it. And I was an avid reader. I used to be off all every weekend, go off, find a few books so that I could read them during the week. And I was in what happened. I was involved with a few other groups sort of on the periphery as an invite, if you like. I had an uncle who was from a UFO group in the Midlands that invited me on occasion. But where we lived at the time, I had a quite a strict religious upbringing. Uh, I'd been dedicated a Methodist when I was younger, and then I was brought up quite strict Church of England. We went to a high Church of England school. You had to be baptised, you had to be in the choir, you had to do Bible studies, and then when I was 11 years old, or when I was just before my 11th birthday, we moved to a new home, and it was literally 100 yards away from the local spiritualist church. And a few of my father's work colleagues already went to the spiritualist church. So you, as children, you always do what your parents say and go where they go. So we then started going to the spiritualist church. 
And one day, I, I never, again, I wasn't interested in religion per se, and it was just something that you had to do what your parents told. But this day, we'd been to the church a few times and sort of, but we went sort of for usual Sunday service. And then as you get older in your teens, like children everywhere, you're trying to grow up, uh, trying to be more adult and do the more adult things. You're trying to go out with your friends, learn about motorcycles and cars and girls and all the usual things that teenagers do. Uh, and I'm walking by the church one day because I had to, it was on the end of our street. So we literally had to walk by the church to get to the local bus stop to catch a, a bus to meet friends or to go to the homes. And as I'm walking by the church, there's this old guy stood outside in a brown three-piece suit smoking a cigarette and as I walked by I didn't know him uh and as I walked by he just said put his hand up and he went Paul and I looked and I, he said have you got a minute so I thought okay you know you be polite so respect your elders I walked over towards him he says just a minute and he fished in his pocket and he got out a scrappy bit of paper and a little pencil and he's writing something down and then he held it up to show me and it was just the three letters UFO and he said, I've just been told by spirit to show you this and tell you that you're thinking along the right lines. And it was like, whoa, I mean, I didn't know this guy. And the thing was, my parents didn't know that I was like an avid, because as a child, you're quite insular, as a teenager, you're quite insular. Uh, and I know my grandchildren now don't want to know mum and dad, never mind grandma and granddad. And I think that's the way of the world. And yes, they'll come back. But part of the growing that we all do, you tend to be more private as you're growing through your teens. Sure. So my parents didn't know that I was an avid reader of UFOs or anything else and into the paranormal. And for this guy suddenly out of the blue to say this to me, and it was like, whoa. So anyway, he said, I want you to go to the uh, church and come to the church and to talk to an um, old medium called Betty. So in due course, I met this Betty and she says, oh, I've got a job for you. And so I'm thinking she wants me to do something around the home because I was quite right. a strong young man, you know. And she says, I want you to go and see another lady called Pearl. And I said, who's Pearl? Anyway, turns out, cutting a long story short, this Pearl had quite debilitating migraines. And she said, I want you to go and heal Pearl. And I went, I've never, I mean, then I, I didn't know what a healing circle was, what these development circles, do they call them? I, di I didn't know any of that. Uh, I had never tried anything spiritual on that side of things. Yes, I had attended the church, so I knew the basics sort of behind it, but that was all, that same most people. Anyway, the, the other thing was, it turns out that I knew Pearl's daughter and she was quite a good looking young girl. So as an incentive as a teenage young man, it's like, yeah, this sounds good. I'll go see Pearl. Anyway, I caught the local transport. She only lived a few villages away, maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Get off, knocked on the door and she was waiting for me. Opened the door, come in, Paul. And I followed her, found out. The daughter had gone away because of a migraine. Daughter was staying with grandma and granddad. So she was on her own. And she oh, literally... no. The incentive was gone. So My close. <laughs> but it turned out that one of the most amazing experiences, because 
I swear it was just as if somebody took over my body, although I was completely aware of what was happening. Um, she closed the door behind me and then walked past me into, uh, imagine a really large old Victorian home, and it had this sort of, uh, a couple of reception rooms in the kitchen, and she walked into this lounge, and all the curtains were closed, so it was really quite dark in the room, and there was just one, like, dining chair, like a dining carver, in the centre of the room. And this lady walked in front of me, sat down on the carver with her back to me, and I, purely as, as I was sort of steered into it, if you like, walked straight up to the back of it and put my hands on her shoulders. This pearl said a prayer, and then I felt like somebody else had control of my body. And I had one hand, yeah, go on, you I ask. Have, I have a couple of questions through there. Um, and one, I mean, first of all, you said you were a teenager, so I know in 68 you were 11. So what is this, probably about 73-ish, something like that? That that was then, yes. But this is, uh, this is maybe a few years later now. I've, I've moved on a few years later from that. Right, because you're a teenager and interested in, in Pearl's yeah. daughter. Um, the other thing I, I've noticed now three times is that the, the man in brown said a spirit told him to say this. He suggested yeah. that you meet the, the first woman at a church, and now she said a prayer. So we're having a lot of overlap between what we would call our traditional religions and sure. something that would probably be anathema to most churches or organized religions. So... I just want to say I'm, I'm taking note of that. I, I have a feeling you may bring it home later, but if not, I want to see if we can explore that later. Sure. I mean, I, in my opinion, they were sort of following, uh, like Pearl saying a prayer, was just following the protocols of the church she attended. That was the thing they normally did, which they said was for things to be done in the right way, for protection, and for to, things done good, you know. So is this, it was a Christian, I'm guessing Anglican, uh, sort of just a uh, just a regular prayer or psalm for healing? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'll be the first to admit, I couldn't tell you a word that she said, <laughs> <laughs> except may, maybe amen at the end, but you know. Was it English? So, oh, yes, yes. I mean, I don't expect you to, I mean, I figured out what your, I mean, you can only be two ages and it's easy for me to calculate because I was born in 68. So it's easy for me to add 11 to that. Um, so I don't expect you to remember uh, the words of a prayer from, you know, what was, uh, yeah. you, know, you know, 40 plus years ago. So anyway, so picture this. I'm in this quite a large lounge with just a dining chair in the center, quite dark lady in the middle she just said a prayer i stood with my hands on her shoulders and then i felt like somebody else was moving me and i put one hand i wasn't touching her then one hand just above her head my left hand and my right hand up towards the ceiling now i did this i don't know why uh, but as this happened i then got what i would call a vibration or a frequency that felt to be coming from somewhere above me coming down through my arms and into the top of her head. And I could feel it quite clearly. It was a physical sensation where something was coming down and into her head. And I was just sort of the conduit that was allowing it to happen type of thing that was being used as a, a means to, to an end. And I, it literally lasted, I dare move then, 
because I'm sort of thinking if I say anything or move, I, I could spoil this. So I'm just trying to stand there like a policeman. I took traffic lights with my arms up in the air and not move. And then I felt physically again, felt that this vibration, this frequency just stop. It just switched off. And I knew that was it. And I put my hands back down on, on her shoulders. Uh, and she, I'll never forget, she sort of half turned round and half stood up. And she just said, my, you hide your light under a bushel, don't you? And I mean... <laughs> As a teenage boy, I didn't even know what that meant. You know, it was like, and she just jumped up, opened the curtains, put the kettle on, and 10 minutes later, I'm walking out the hand, out the house with my head spinning, thinking, what the heck happened then? You know, it was. But you had a spot to take, right? Yeah. Of course, amazing. you have to. Are you acquainted with a gentleman named Alan Cox? No, not that I okay. recall. Well, he's in the UK also, and, and he's clergy. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember what denomination. But he uh, described a himself as a psychic surgeon, but his first experience with it is, I mean, obviously his comes from a more uh, religious background, uh, you know, for, based on his uh, beliefs or upbringing or training. But anyway, the the actual description of what happened to him when he first healed someone is remarkably similar to yours. So... Maybe someone you want to look up and compare notes at yeah, some. Sure. So what was his name again? Alan Cox, C-O-X. Alan Cox, right, I'll do that. Right. So anyway, so that was just one of the earlier experiences where I had no idea uh, why or how it happened. But again, I think things happen in people's lives for a reason. This, to me, uh, I mean, I'm not religious in the slightest now. Uh because as we all know, you do get good and you also get bad people in all religions. Sure. Uh, but I won't go into religion now, but suffice it to say that I don't follow any religion at all. Having said that, I don't have no axe to grind. And if people are good people, that's wonderful. That's whatever religion they are. So I'd experienced that. And again, to me, that was just something that I think I was allowed to experience to let me know that there are other things out there and this is how it can work. Now, one other thing that happened uh, years later, again, a few years later, I worked down a mine uh, underground. I'd gone to the mine as a medic doing uh, occupational health nursing. Uh, but with anybody that's been in that sort of business knows it can get quite boring things can get quite trivial and you sat there twiddling your thumbs and you're always thinking of other things to do and so what i did was i asked to go underground and to work underground and i was put a part of this road laying team laying the rail track like a railroad track underground for the mm -hmm. engines and i was with this old guy and we'd been working quite hard and you were always working on the return side of things where the air had been around the coal face and was returning back to the bottom. So it was usually quite hot. So what we used to do was we'd come through the air doors to where the air was coming in to the mine when it was fresh air and it was cool and we'd rest there. Everybody had a lunch break in the mine at the same time. All the conveyor belts stopped, everything stopped. Everybody had the lunch. Then it started up again and everybody went back to work. So a couple of us, and sometimes yeah, I'd be on my own. And this day, this day I remember, I came through the air doors and I'm with this old guy 
They tended to put anybody that was disabled or more elderly, we used to call them the button men, where any coal that had been mined had come over onto the conveyor belts and the conveyor belts would take it out of the mine. Well, everywhere where one conveyor belt changed direction and loaded onto another, they had to be somebody that controlled it in case there were any problems. So that's that was the jobs generally of these older people. So I'm sat there with this old guy called Roger having a sandwich, everything's quiet. And then coming up a little drift, a little hill in front of us, towards us, was this old miner looking, shining his lamp around. And then just literally, I would say 30 feet maybe from where we were, was the transfer point from one conveyor belt onto a big one, a massive conveyor belt. And he ducked under the conveyor belt and into this small little roadway that was maybe 20 feet long, and it used to house the electrical gear. So it was always lit up, and they used to cut these big electrical transformers and switch gear for that district that we were working. So we watched this guy come towards us, duck underneath, and he went into this little area where the transformers were. We sat there eating our sandwiches. 30 seconds later, nothing. A minute later, nothing two minutes and he still hadn't come out. Now we thought these old deputies, they check that there's no gases leaking from the old workings or any old uh, seals that they put on anything. So we jumped up, I thought, I wonder if he's had a heart attack or something like that. And we go to have a look and there was nobody there. And the two of, them as, two of us had seen this guy very clearly uh, and he'd got like within 20 feet of us. And we went there and there was just nobody there at all. And the thing is that listeners have to realise when you're down a mine and in that sort of situation, you can't hide, you can't go anywhere because you're surrounded by solid rock. There's nowhere to go. It's a, it's a, you are a captive audience. Yeah, absolutely. So he would have had to come back past us or go back the way he came. Uh, and we both looked at each other and it was like, Hey, how come this happen, you know? But it was quite clear. And we sort of tried to talk it over between the, to make sure we'd seen the same thing. Uh, and we had, but they, it was, again, it's something that defied explanation. What was the garb, the, the attire? They, well, that was the other thing. And then in the 1980s, uh, within the British for National Coal Board, everybody wore orange coveralls. So you may have trousers and a shirt or all in one, and they were always bright orange. And this guy, but even then, some of the older deputies and the older overmen who worked areas down a mine, some of them still used to wear their own trousers and they'd have their own shirts and a jacket on. And this guy was dressed like that. He was dressed in old miners, but it wasn't unusual. It, it looked normal. <laughs> <laughs> so, so some of the veterans were sort of grandfathered in as to not having to wear the safety attire. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Gotcha. Um, but the another thing which happened while I was down the mine, because uh, I was quite strong as I was younger then, there was uh, we had two road lane teams, and I was put on with this old guy called Max. And you still look was, pretty strong. I can see your traps. I can see your oh, shoulders. Thanks. You look like a retired superhero. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, yes, there's somebody else said, uh, what did they say the other day? So he, was, he called me the, the George Clooney of ufology, I think was his term. Oh, wow. I thought, oh, that's good. But 
Anyway, I won't pursue that line of thought at the minute. People confuse me with Brad Pitt all the time. <laughs> Excellent. Right. Anyway, so they put me with Max, this old guy. And I was like the brawn for his brains, if you like. He knew the job inside out. And they put me with him to see him through his later years, if you like. Anyway, we're down this. We just connected the old track to remove. And when anybody that knows has done any mining, when you break through into a new area, there's lots of equipment that has to be moved out before the mines can work as normal because they use heavy equipment to make the roadways to be, to be able the mining to begin. So what we did would we go around, connect the track, and then try and get everything ready for them to just load the equipment to move it out of the way so that mining could start. And we'd done that, and we're resting on this big old conveyor belt, maybe three or four feet across. Uh, and Max had just squat at the side of the road, and we'd have 10 minutes and have a sandwich. And then we would walk. Part of our job was inspecting track and making sure it was okay back to the mine so there were no accidents. And it was part of the routine of the job. So we'd finished the heavy work, having 10 minutes, and then we were going to walk back. As we're having 10 minutes, I'm laid on this conveyor belt. I'm laid on the conveyor belt, <laughs> having a rest. And then the next thing I know, my ears popped and I felt this pressure wave coming towards me. As my ears popped, I sort of sat up. My ears popped again and then I could see the roadway getting lighter as this sort of ball of fire, if you like, uh, flame was coming towards me. So I rolled off the conveyor belt at the side of me conveniently was a manhole i'm trying to get in the manhole at the same time i'm trying to get myself rescue off because we had a thing called a self rescuer that helped you to breathe so that you're not breathing in carbon monoxide after an explosion so i'm screaming at maxi to get in the edge i'm trying to get my rescuer on and literally as the brightness of the flame went past me and I'm trying to shoot my eyes and making myself as small as I can in this manhole. I woke up and it was like, and everything was just normal and he's just still squat there at the side of the roadway and I'm thinking, what? And my heart was hammering in my chest and I just jumped up and I went, Max, and I screamed at him and he just sort of looked up like, like I was an imbecile, like what's the matter with him? And I said, Max, there's going to be an explosion. He's going, don't be silly, you know, come on. And I'm saying, no, I'm, I've just experienced an explosion. And I must have scared him to death because we both walked straight over to the intake side, which was the safer side, and walked straight out of the mine and we both lost an hour's pay. So I must have been convincing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But it was something that was absolutely physical. I felt the, my, the heat, I felt the pressure on my ears and everything else. Anyway, this... I can't remember the year off the top of my head, but literally within 48 hours, there was an explosion exactly the same at a mine at Glasgow in Scotland. Uh, now, I've never had a premonition before and I've never had a premonition since. But it was so real and it was so much like, well, identical to what happened uh, probably about 30 hours later, if you could actually do it in time on a, on a timeline. And I think personally, it was something I experienced because I was in that environment. So that is what I picked up on. Mm. Uh, and so going back to the healing of the lady with the intense migraines, again, it was just something to me that I was being shown 
this is how it can be. And it was the same with the premonition. This is what you can what you pick up on. And it's like I've had these little lessons, if you like, although I've never I only ever experienced everything once. I mean, how bizarre is that? <laughs> OK, so so the premonitions isn't something you've been able to replicate because that'd be interesting if you could tell that they were always 30 hours it's like a movie you can say i've yeah. got a premonition you've got 30 hours to solve it <laughs> i i'm assuming that with pearl that she got better and two you never met her daughter no <laughs> well it, it was i knew her through school but she was in a different sort of uh, we, uh they, they were group we were in groups of classes and she but was you know, in a different class to me but healing mom never got you to the. Uh, no, unfortunately. Okay. En enough about my uh, my soap opera uh, desire. So, <laughs> uh, so okay. So af after the mind, you had the premonition, and at this point, you. I mean, it's almost like you were touched by uh, you know an angel or something. Um, so yeah. So your friend was convinced, uh, and and so then what happened? Well, then uh, I moved into the. Uh, we had the then it was the year where we were having the trouble with the mines and closing the mines and all the minor strikes and everything and I could see what was going to happen and it was like this isn't going to end well now I had already joined our territorial army which uh, in America would be like the National Guard gotcha. and so I just went into the regular army uh, I went in as a medic uh, and I literally just went from one job to another so i was a medic in the army then but part of the group that i was with already in the territorial army the national guard uh they were infantry so i, I became an infantry medic because that was the natural progression of, of the group of soldiers or the brigade of like soldiers that i were with what year was this around sorry what year what year what year are we talking about uh 1982 Okay, so was this around the Falklands time? Yeah, yeah, exactly that. It was, uh, I was, I joined the Prince of Wales own, uh, which is a, like, yeah, like, uh, they all, all these infantry battalions all have the names and the designation of the areas which they work. So uh, we, we never, I, I actually said you were from the UK, which is a, you know, a pretty big place. It's an island, but wh where, where are you from in the UK? From Yorkshire. Okay, and that is right. northern right. center, yeah, Leeds. Yeah, right. so not not too. I mean, are are you close to York, the city of York? Yeah, sure. It's like traveling time, three quarters of an hour, fifty minutes away. Okay, and uh, are you closer or further from Scotland? Oh, much further. Yeah, Scotland would be. South. Yeah, Scotland's about on a good day, two hours north. Okay, gotcha. Just, uh, I mean, just trying to get an idea where you're, you're from. You yeah. said the Prince of Wales, so that might imply that you were from Wales, but the part obviously. Oh, no. that's, that's two hours west. Gotcha. <laughs> so anyway, uh, a part of the infantry battalion that I was with, uh, you had to do, obviously, soldier first, and everything else was secondary. And I found myself... Uh, getting more involved in it and wanting to do more. And I finished up joining uh, and volunteering for reconnaissance work. Uh, and reconnaissance platoon used to do a lot more uh, covert soldiering. Like you'd be on your own, you'd do a lot more sniper work, a lot more uh, camouflage things. And you'd be allegedly 
very good at what you did. We used to do aircraft recognition. When years later, uh, I used to teach aircraft recognition to recruits, uh, things like that. But the reason I'm telling you this, we were on an exercise where you'd do a night exercise taking in different checkpoints during the night over several hours, maybe 10 miles as much as eight or 10 miles. And there were checkpoints that you had to be. It was like a severe orienteering test over a huge training area. So you had timings and checkpoints you had to do. So I've got a small section of maybe four guys and I'm leading this section and we had to go by compass bearing from point A to point B to point C. As we're doing this one night uh, and we see this light in the sky that was quite uh, a bright white light, but it kept having these red and green flashes and white flashes within it. And initially we thought it was an aircraft. Well, they're a lot like, like they are in America and Canada, they're quite big training areas. And we just thought somebody would be doing an exercise and it were an aircraft or something that was we didn't know about. Now, we had really, really good maps, so we knew it wasn't a mast. We knew it because you get these relay masts and things like nothing like that in that area. So we saw this light and we're watching it. And as the night wore on, as time went on, we, it didn't move for probably, I would think, a few hours. And as we'd move from one checkpoint to another, it remained stationary. So it obviously wasn't an aircraft because you wouldn't even get a helicopter that would stay in one place in hover for that long. Uh, no sound from it at all. Uh, and no apparent strobes, even though you could see the different coloured lights within it. And we had that insight for a few hours. And literally, as, it, as we're coming towards the end of the evening or the end of the night, and we're getting towards our checkpoint, uh, You'd be going like in uh, in gullies and in hedges and these little places where so that you weren't being seen by anybody else. And we came out of this gully at the edge of this forest, at the edge of this wood, and we up to the edge of the tree line. And as we came up and this light should have been in front of us because we'd been watching it. So we knew exactly where it was. And these four heads popped up and we had a look. Nothing there. And it literally. Uh, had just appeared we'd noticed it and then it just disappeared no nothing and I actually reported that to my commanding officer uh, and said this was roughly the position it was because way we move you can triangulate obviously where you think this is from your, your compass bearings so we knew how far away it was and roughly what position it was so we gave him all this information this is what it looked like this is what height we thought it was this is roughly the grid where we thought it was didn't hear any more from anybody so again whether they knew something or not whether other because other units will be doing night exercises to a later you know a greater or lesser degree so i would have thought other troops must have seen it too well, I have to, I mean, I think that you noted earlier that one of the things that you were, I guess, specialized in was recognizing different aircraft. I mean, you, you pointed that earlier. So I think the important thing, if people didn't infer it themselves, is that you, you're you an expert in that. So when you see something that, that's a traditional aircraft uh, at that time, you, pretty good bet that you would be able to identify what it was and what type of plane or, or dirigible or, or helicopter or whatever it was. Uh, and th this fit into none of those. Yeah. 
I mean, just to go on about aircraft recognition, there was uh, where we are in the centre of Yorkshire, we're on the flight path from a lot of the European cities fly over us uh, on a, en route to the States. And not that long ago, uh, just a few weeks ago, we had, I, we'd been out where we are, we live in a small little cul-de-sac and there's only like 15 homes and there's a few children about. And my wife loves the children, so we'd been out playing with the children and then we'd, they'd gone in for the tea, we're outside and, and looked up and there were two aircraft. I mean, we all know flights have been drastically reduced just recently, but there were two aircraft almost parallel with each other from going from Europe going westerly and I'm looking at them uh, and to me initially something like the usual 757 twin engine uh, and maybe 747 four engine Go, but because they were going in the same direction and because they were maybe on maybe only a few miles apart but it was unusual to see two parallel contrails and as I'm looking I see a very very bright point of light brilliant blue white light behind them in the distance and it was like what is that because again now this i'm talking probably 6 p.m in the evening summertime beautiful blue sky not a cloud in the sky why can i see a white point of light Wait, we're talking about england beautiful sky that's yeah. something i've heard i've yeah. heard it's always rainy and cloudy Hey, well, it is. We get, we're getting to that season now. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so the, the, it was because I was looking at the aircraft that I saw the blue-white point of light. And it didn't, it was stationary. Now, as anybody that does any research or is into the stars or anything, uh, from our position, if you're looking at the stars, they rotate in a clockwise direction. We had this light in sight for 45 minutes and it never moved. Uh, if anything, it moved very slightly closer towards us over about 15 minutes. And then that now I, I'm looking due east, sorry, uh, probably it's about 70 degrees due east and a tiny pinpoint of light moving slowly, slowly towards us. And then it was stationary and then started moving north very very slowly by this time we've got neighbors out both sides that came over my wife had got my binoculars and a camera i had normal autofocus digital camera um wouldn't focus on it it was a nightmare uh, but i found that a lot of times people uh that try to take photographs of ufos they tend the cameras won't focus and I've had four good daytime sightings in the last year from where I am, where the camera would not focus on an object, on a light. It's like vampires. Oh, it's so frustrating. And it's in one bit on one of the, the time before this, I managed to, the only way I could get a picture of it is by taking a photograph of the sky that I knew it was roughly in that area and then trying to zoom in. But by then it becomes so pixelated that you don't get the detail that you would. So cutting a long story short at the end of this, 
what happened was uh, we'd got I got some normal 10 by 50 binoculars and I've also got some really good uh, 25 by 70 binoculars. My wife had got two chairs out of the garage and we, we laid on these reclining chairs, leaning back to try and keep the binoculars still to focus on this object. Uh, a few of our neighbours were out with us and in the end there were eight adults and about four children saw this object. Now initially it looked just like a bright light but when you looked at it really good if you could get it in focus with the binoculars it was like a, an inner tube like a donut on its edge and while I'm looking at it through at about probably 30-35 minute mark there's uh, a bright light appeared at the back of it sort of flashing around it a really tiny pinpoint of light and then another one that disappeared and then another one appeared to the right of it and then zoomed very quickly past it and disappeared hmm. and again it, this was only something that you could see through the binoculars now i have a page on facebook called it's the real story um, and I've done that because what I try and do is put all these daytime sightings and any photographs I take, uh, videos and other things of interest like conferences that we may be going to or anything like that. So if people give me things of interest, I always put them on that page. So it's, there is quite a lot of information on there if any of the listeners want to go on. And it's Facebook and it's it's the real story if any of them do Facebook. Um, but I try and put things these things on and as we would go on to sort of the 40 minute mark where this thing was still in sight and there were a few of us adults that could see it was this donut shaped object I then went in I've got quite a large telescope a mead telescope and I went in to get that to see if I could because it was so stationary to try and focus on it with the telescope and get it really clear but as I was setting it up David, my neighbour to our left, said it suddenly started moving away north and then just sped away and was gone. And that was it. So we missed it. Uh, but I did manage to get quite a few photographs. And again, that was put on the uh, Facebook page. The, uh, can I ask a question about the, uh, there were the two lights and there was sort of the ring. We'll call it the ring. Do you... Was the ring a separate vessel or do you think it was like a portal or, or a stargate? I think it was a separate vessel. Okay. Um, it's, it's interesting because I, I was wondering where I'd seen that image before and I've seen it a million places, but there's the, the reboot of the War of the Worlds, which takes place in the UK. It's probably filmed there. Their ships are giant rings as well. Right, yep. <clears throat> well, this, I mean, we've had a few instances uh, where I've managed to get photographs where they were huge uh i got one was like uh what you what you would call an american football we would call a rugby ball where it was that ellipsoid shape but it was vertical uh, my wife saw it too and i managed to get a good photograph of that one and again that's on the uh, facebook page but the top of it again seemed fuzzy like there was some atmosphere around it and it wouldn't focus so you can only work with the equipment that you're with. Sure. Well, I, I wonder because there was some equipment that you couldn't get uh, pictures with. I wonder if the, there's certain technology that's blocked and others that isn't. Uh, 
Yeah. Now, I, I'll go on to that. I have different theories about different things. But if you imagine everything around us now, right? You and I have a magnetic field. The chair we sat on, the computer in front of us, and everything reacts with everything else. So we knew, or we would know, if we met close together, you know immediately if you're going to get on with somebody. And that's because your magnetic field reacts to theirs. So you know if you're vibrating on the same page, you know if they're on the same page, or if you're going to be at odds with each other. And that's when you get these personality clashes. So you know when somebody's going to get on. Now, we only see and hear uh, less than one-tenth of one percent of the electromagnetic spectrum that we know about. So at the top end, you've got radio waves, and then it comes down through infrared, and then you get visible light on the acoustic spectrum, and then it goes down through the ultraviolet, and then X-rays, and then gamma rays at the lower end. So we see only that tiny, tiny portion of it. And we often, as investigators with UFOs, you often get people, um, you know, or shall I say, you will get instances of people that see it and people that don't. People where they may see something. How many do we have of people that see things from even an, uh, an airfield uh, control tower, but it's not on the radar? And they say, well, it should be there because I can see it. And likewise, where they'll see something on radar and then they look out and there's nothing there. And that's because it's using a different frequency. And in my opinion, the aliens, for want of a better term, I, call, I prefer to call them ET because they're just not on our wavelength. ET would be masters of the electromagnetic spectrum. Now, that is just the electromagnetic spectrum that we're aware of. And if you look at your cosmologists and scientists now, there's a lot of them that are saying, 75, 90, I've even heard figures as high as 95% of the universe is made of dark energy and dark matter. So therefore, that one-tenth of one percent is actually only one-tenth of one percent of five percent of the energy and matter that's available in the universe. So that's an even tiny, tiny, minuscule amount that we normally deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Oh, yeah, that's objectively true. The difference in frequencies that we can't contact, the, the, the dogs can detect, the, uh, we can't see infrared. I mean, there's there's heat sure. vision, there's uh, the, the different kinds of, uh, you know, there's x-rays. So, I mean, none of this is science fiction. This is just science. So sure. it stands to reason that some of the things that we're just sort of on the cusp of, that a civilization that either got luckier than we are or is older than we are would be, years if not centuries and millennia ahead of us and and have mastered some of these things so i mean it's it's intuitive speculation yeah sure i mean if you look how far we've come in the last hundred years even mm -hmm. and then look how far you may have a, a, a race of et that might be a thousand could be ten thousand years in front of us so i'll put it in a different analogy that for the listeners if you imagine our electromagnetic spectrum is a record an LP, if you like. So that is the LP that we're on, where the, you, all the frequency is on that. Now, what if we've got all the others, like oh, it's a whole stack of records, 
and ET is vibrating at a much higher frequency in a different energy altogether in this dark energy. So that might be two, three, four records in the stack higher than us. So because they're masters of it and they understand it, they can then, but one of the things that we hear is lower their vibration to come to our level to interact with us. Yeah, and that's and one thing. Go on, sorry, Jeff. Yeah, for those skeptics out there, imagine if there was just a company, maybe even a smaller division, but a company of Marines, U.S. Marines with a depot, an arm, a munitions depot and standard equipment. And they were transported to five or 6,000 years ago. They'd probably be able to take over the world um, j just with that. So would they seem like gods? Probably. Yeah. And again, looking at it logically, somebody that is that advanced and not only is able to understand the whole of the dark energy and uh, electromagnetic spectrum, but able to understand it completely, able to manipulate it and use it. Therefore, it becomes quite obvious how they can manipulate what people, because every thought that you have also, everything that you give up is an energy. Like Einstein said, everything is energy. You can't do it. So if you, every time you think of something, I mean, now we've got the basics where we do EEGs and ECGs, uh, electrocardiographs and electroencephalographs, where we can pick up the brain patterns and the brain waves, but we're only scratching the surface because we don't fully understand it. Now, you get somebody who completely understands it, they can tell what you're thinking. They can erase your memories they can that's why when you get the abduction scenarios with the ufologists that's why you get this where people don't remember because in one, one of the things that i speculate is it a bizarre act of kindness that et doesn't let you remember yes yeah. so, so like men in black right sure yeah that too uh, i mean that's a, a different sort of well, one of the things that i I, I've written a book called uh, UFOs, The Real Story, which is available on Amazon. And I cover a lot of subjects and try and introduce different things. And what I've tried to do is cover more pieces of the pie. Now, I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination, I've got all of the pie there. Like I may have some of the pieces of the pizza missing, but... You do tend to get a lot of books on the paranormal and ufology where people tend to stick to, uh, we'll just say Sasquatch or Mothman or maybe UFOs in Pascagoula, the Calvin Parker incident, where they'll stick to particular incidents or places or singular things. And I, what I've tried to do is say it is part of a bigger picture and they all do uh participate and they're all part of this bigger spectrum and that is why i believe things like well I've just mentioned bigfoot sasquatch yeti whatever you want to call it there'll never be any evidence because they're interdimensional and it's like ghosts spirit you won't get the proof because the proof is in a different place. It's on a different record. It's on not on our record. It's not. It's on a different record in the stack. And occasionally, you'll get places, uh, Skinwalker Ranch is one, but there are places all over the world where the records touch 
for want of a better term, and you get this overlap. And that is when people uh, experience these places. Um, the Oz effect that Jacques Bally, uh mentioned. And you get these high, what can I say, high strangeness areas, geographical areas, all around the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I've talked to a bunch of people about that. Uh, this couple of people talked about the San Luis Valley in the four corners of the US. Uh, I spoke to a gentleman who wouldn't reveal where he was, but I have a feeling that, that I generally know where it was. So, you know, because it's obviously in a mountainous area in the south to southeast. So, I mean, there's only so many mountain areas there. Uh, yeah. But in any event, but yeah, uh, the, the, you know, high plains and high deserts. Yeah. Uh, and I, that this is again, this is an area that we're slowly becoming aware of that there is a lot more to things than we, our small electromagnetic bit that we're aware of. It goes much, much further beyond that. And going back to the UFOs and the abduction scenario, that is why, if you're able to control it and manipulate it, that is why people can be abducted wherever they are because people can just be tuned out of their record and into a different place. One of the things is a good one for you. Things that you get both paranormal, uh, Bigfoot and UFOs, and they all three have the same thing in common. And one of them is, or a few things in common, but one of them is silence. And that's complete silence. And one of the things that people will say, when this, I saw this Bigfoot, and the woods were completely silent. I couldn't hear anything. And it's the same when people have seen UFOs. And sometimes that happens also when people are witnessing the paranormal. And it's because you're not on your record. You're not on your frequency. You suddenly, you're in the right place all of a sudden. Your investigation's taking you to where the records overlap. And suddenly you're on a different record. So you're not within your normal acoustic spectrum, so you won't hear anything. So it's where dimensions intersect? Yeah. So, so you're the like ETs on that your, crossing. So in your opinion, the ETs are really EDs. They're, they're extra-dimensional, not yeah. extraterrestrial. Yeah. I mean, I say extraterrestrial because that's how people perceive it. There are right, a lot of things. ED means something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's like it's like one of the other things which I say is people they're trying to introduce these UAPs with the latest report which they've done and all the rest of it. But again, I, I rest my case. You go to any go to your local shopping mall and stop the first 100 people that walk in the front door and say, "What's a UFO?" And I guarantee that 99 out of that 100 will know what a UFO is and will tell you that sort of thing. Ask them what a UAP is, they won't have a clue. Right. Um, and because historically people have always called them UFO, that is the generally accepted term from the public. So that is why I will always, at the moment, I will not, not never say never, but will always use the term UFO rather than UAP. Although I agree UAP is probably much more accurate, it's well, just it, not widely known. Was it, wasn't it your countrymen who came up with UFOs? The, it was either World War One or World War Two, where they called them Foo Fighters? Yeah, Foo Fighters, yeah. But that's another thing as well. The the different ways that the, the public perceive things. Uh, and I think the going on to disclosure and other things, 
um, there's a lot more now in public awareness. And I think partly that is because everybody has a mobile phone. Anybody could record anything and put it straight on the internet. So where historically the authorities have been able to keep a lid on things, now they can't do that. And so looking at this, like, like the latest report, the UAP report, and what they've done then is they're trying to ease the pressure in the pressure cooker, if you like. So yeah, they're they're this, giving us the bare minimum they can because the yeah, point yeah. secrets has been passed. Yeah, uh, and I think, to be fair, they've admitted something's happening, but uh, they've not given us any more than we've ever done previously. And again, that was the other thing, where it was from 2004 onwards, and it's like, well, what happened to the previous 60, 70 years? You know, does that discount them? Well, they have to give uh, churches and major religions time to adjust as to how they're going to explain <laughs> yeah. that. And it was like the other thing where they said they had 80 reports that had multiple sources. So we're talking like the gimbal UFO and the Tic Tac UFO where they were seen by trained observers, by pilots. They were seen on radar and tracked on radar and they were recorded on gun cameras on the F-18 Super Hornets on the infrared. So you've got it on different, these sightings, you've got corroborative evidence in different mediums, in different spectrums. Uh, and they had 80 reports of that, but they only, they only released three of them. So are some of the uh, ones that weren't released, I would think much more uh, convincing. Yes, definitely so. So you have done your work with Bufon, I think was the name of it. Bufora. Bufora. UFO Research Association. Yeah. Are there any names that, that people would recognize that you've worked with or collaborated with? Oh, sure. Um, I've, I mean, I've worked with, obviously, Philip Mantle quite a few. I've known Philip for decades. Mm -hmm. um, he's a publisher and an author. Yeah, he's a good guy. Um, they, but there are a lot of other people that I've met along the way. Um, Linda Moulton Howe. Uh, I had I was privileged to have lunch with Bud Hopkins. Now, Bud Hopkins, I'll, I'll just go on. Now, I was very fortunate that I was helping, uh, dare I say, the management part of Bufora, and I was just asked to help organise getting the speakers to and from the stage and making sure people knew where they were going. And... It just happened that Bud was having his lunch the same time as me. And I sat with him and he said, Paul, he said, I got into UFOs quite by accident. He said, I was, he said, I'm trying to be a good guy. He said, I wanted to do that. He said, I'm just an artist. And he said, I wanted to do the counseling uh, to help people, really. And that's how we got into the hypnotherapy and it led on to other things. But one thing that he said, which stuck into my mind, was he said, I became convinced because. Whatever background these people came from, whether they were from wealthy, wealthy people, whether they were the poorest man on the street, whether they came from New York or whether they came from Timbuktu, he says all these people were nearly telling me the identical story. He says these people had never met. And he said, so how can these different people from different backgrounds in different countries all over the world tell me exactly the same thing? in their own words and he said in the end he became convinced of the reality of it and in the end he was an ambassador for the ufology movement you know uh, 
But also, going on from that, there's people, others like Dolores Cannon and more recently, uh, Kath Marden. And Kath, again, one thing that they all said, and they do say, was that the UFOs, uh, when they're taking their written statements and writing down the transcripts from the hypnotherapy, one of the things that they all tend to say is that the UFOs were controlled by thought. And again, going back to what we said again with the electromagnetic spectrum, every thought is a magnetic field, is a magnetic something that can be measured. So if you're able to control it to that extent, therefore, you, you know what you're doing. You know what people are thinking. You know what people can remember. You can control that. And it's the same with, going, again, using the electromagnetic spectrum, how they can move. I mean, yes, they're unidentified. Yes, they're objects, but no, they don't fly. They make me laugh when you see these uh, people that they get on the documentaries on television that say there were no heat plume or there was no visible flight surfaces or there were no, you know, that's because that's our physics. That's not what they use. And they are, because they're able to control where they are, they're in their own little field of the universe, if you like, their own little pocket of universe which is controlled by their thoughts. So it doesn't make any difference whether they're in this in space, whether they're in our air, whether they're in our lakes and oceans, it's irrelevant. And it's the same with uh, one of the things which Captain Frege said was it moved from virtually sat on the surface of the sea up to 50,000 feet vertically in a few seconds. And it's because and that's the other thing they say, all oh, those sort of speeds or manoeuvres would kill a person, you know what? There's no G-forces because they're in their own pocket of energy and it's just the energy that's moving. The only thing that's speed is what we perceive. They're not feeling anything. There are no G-forces to them. There's no miles an hour to them. They're not moving. And that's why we get this difference of opinion and different sort of correlation to things because we're trying to put our perspective and our physics on what they can do and it don't compute at all. Does right. that make sense? Yeah, we're trying to do physical physics while they're in a, I guess, a frequency physics, yeah. uh, which maybe acts differently. Uh, maybe that's a very primitive way of putting it, but I'm no scientist. Um, you, you have been studying this for quite some time. So, you know, what are, what are your studies entail? Do you interview people? Uh, have you worked with scientists? What What is the... Uh, what, what, what's the protocols, the dis, the disciplines? How, how do you approach your research, and uh, you know, and, and how did you decide what to write about? Yeah, um, I decided to try and because over the years you tend to form opinions. Now, don't get me wrong; I'm not saying that uh, I've got all the answers. However, as you get into this over a longer period of time things begin to make sense. And it's like how, how I've said how all paranormal uh, UFOs, uh, cryptids, they're all part of a group of within this electromagnetic spectrum that we can't see, that we're not familiar with. And I think is it's good that, that you get people and investigators like within Bufora and within MUFON and other UFO groups where they have a set 
uh, investigative protocol, if you like. They have forms and things that they have to fill in. And it's like they have to be able to dot the I's and cross the T's. They have to fill these boxes in. And I think now as I've got older, uh, I don't have that need anymore. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sort of freelance now, if you like, for want of a better term, that you can develop your own ideas. I mean, people still email me and people still say, Paul, have you seen this? And send me videos and say, what do you think of this? And like I got a really good couple of videos the other day and it was like, yeah, that's the uh, Atlas V booster rocket from the Landsat 9 satellite, you know. But if they don't know, uh, you know, it's just something different in the sky type of thing. And I mean, now, obviously, there's readily available apps for just about anything. You can look at the space station, you can look at the planets, you can look at satellites. You know, there's everything that's up there. There's an app to track it. Now, I'm not saying it crosses it all off uh, and there can be inaccuracies, but generally speaking, it does help uh, to identify a lot of things. And people don't realise, I mean, you know, uh, you can get apps that tell you, like I saw those two aircraft. I could have just put the app on, yeah, and I could say, yes, that took off from Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam and it's going to Atlanta, you know. So you even know what sort of aircraft it is and the aircraft number. That's how good they're becoming. And wow. so it's it's just, a, what can I say, it's a natural way of advancing and thinking and just accepting that, there are other things out there that we can't physically measure with our current technological or technology. Wow. Okay, so uh, I guess tell us a, a bit about your book. Okay. Uh, my book's called UFOs, The Real Story, published by Flying Disc Press. It's available on Amazon in as a Kindle, audiobook, paperback, and there's a hardback collector's edition. Uh, there's, there's so many things and so many facets to this uh, that link a lot of things together. But just very briefly, another one that came to mind then while we were just talking was how you will get people that become terrified of spirits in the paranormal, terrified, and I mean, they feel real terror. It's mm -hmm. a physical, visceral terror uh, with Sasquatch, Bigfoot. And it's the same with UFOs. And I think that's, again, that's on uh, a human uh, level where your frequency, if you like, your soul knows you're crossing onto that other record and onto that next plane and you're going onto a frequency or a vibration that you shouldn't be on. And so it feel, you feel that visceral terror. Right, it's something it, completely foreign and, you, and your body doesn't know how to process so your nervous system. Yes. Does it just just fright or you know fright or flight, but no fight? <laughs> yeah, well, where fight or flight? Yeah, that's that's on a normal chemical level. Well, this is that's on a uh, physical level. This is on the visceral terror you get from all these different things is the same because it's on a spiritual level. on the back of your neck sticker. Yeah, because it's on a spiritual level. Mm -hmm. So it's your soul that recognizes it's not where it should be. Interesting. Um, without giving too much of the book away, just give some teasers, things that people absolutely want to read about, but don't don't finish the thought, so they have to read about it. <laughs> well, I cover quite a few different uh, paranormal experiences. 
and quite a lot of my a few of the uh, things I've mentioned today of the uh, sightings of UFOs and witnesses that I've done there are quite a lot more of those in the book and I put uh, photographs in and things that I've uh, that are on the website well I'm saying website on Facebook on it's the real story I did have a website but I kept getting attacked by uh, people putting viruses and things on and it was it, it became too much in the end so sure. after three or four attempts at it I've had to uh, take the website down and I think again uh, if you're getting too close to the truth same as on Facebook people don't like it you get censored you know so so, so I've heard, um, but it, you can always feel free if you want to post something on Garden of Doom site. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say I did not know I had to enable it to allow other people to post on it. I, I did so this past <laughs> week, so probably this is as good a time as any to let folks know. But uh, obviously most people listen to the show and they don't go on the web page. It's just sort of fun for me to sort of curate articles and share things and, and put it on there. I try to put you know, three to six a day. I don't want to overwhelm anyone, but I always want there to be some sort of content. To, you know, I think that if someone's interested in the show, they'll be interested in that stuff. So feel free. I believe I su su successfully um, enable it, not to compete with your own site, but maybe to get to uh, a draw to some other people that might then go to your website. But yeah, uh, that that's great. I guess how in your country, as you say, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Thank you. Anything else that you want to promote besides the the book or the website? Do you have a YouTube channel or anything like that? Uh, no. Uh, I, I mean, I've, I've been on uh, quite a few podcasts and things on YouTube. Uh, and I've do, different people do different things. Some do on the paranormal side, some do the ufological side. It is mainly the UFO side of things that I'm interested in at the moment because I find that it's becoming people are becoming more aware of it and again is that a media thing where people are allowing more than they used to do yeah i think that the world was sort of surprised that the world wasn't that surprised by yeah. that disclosure uh, i mean we, we've been sort of i think a lot of people have sort of been expecting it's something whether they think it's something divine or whether it's something extraterrestrial extra dimensional i mean i think people have been sort of ready to see things like this whether you think it's a, a ezekiel and his chariot of gold or quetzalcoatl uh, flying you know in his golden eagle or whatever the case may be or angels or um you know ets or extra dimensions i think a lot of people believe a lot of different things that can sort of be reconciled again i i'm not sure if it was you that i said this with but i think that the words get in the way because we have so many different words for the same things. Yeah. If we could agree upon the language, it may be easier to figure it out. We need like a council of a like a council of Nicaea or UN to come up with a agreed upon terminology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have, or or that you that you didn't get to say? Uh, I'm sure there'll be lots of things, Jeff, but generally speaking, we've, we've covered quite a lot of bases tonight and uh, I'm sure there would be many more, but off the top of my head, I mean, there are so many, um, what can I say, examples of different parts of what, what I've said. Uh, and there are some of those in the book where I've said this happens because that happens because, and here's an example. Uh, 
and that is something that sometimes people need to look at the because for me it, when i when i saw those first two ufos it was like i wanted to know the nuts and bolts and the physics of how can that actually work you know uh and i still don't think we know but we're getting more of an idea <laughs> so, okay so to get into something a little bit less frivolous and i'm going to let you go what is the piece of media whether it's television movies or otherwise that you think most closely resembles your beliefs your theory of what is the truth Ooh, that's a good question because i'm now going more to the i won't say esoteric but more on the spiritual side of things and our spiritual development and growth and i think that's the direction we need to be going in so it's it's more it's less arrival and contact than maybe the MCU with multiverses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, don't I mean don't get me wrong. There, there is some fantastic authors and people out there with amazing brains, and and that's another thing where in my book I've tried to do it in a normal layman's language, so that because people don't want to be picking a book up and then halfway through thinking. Oof, this is really heavy. I need to pick that up when I can concentrate and understand it. You know, you need to be able to pick something up and understand it straight away. And that's what I've tried to do. Okay. Well, I'm going to try and pin you down and say Stargate or something. So, very, very good. People read the book and go to his webpage. They, they both have very similar titles, obviously. One is called UFO, It's the Real Story, and the other one is It's the Real Story, right? Yeah. Okay. So, Thank you very much for, for coming into the Garden of Doom. You're welcome anytime, and I, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. Excellent. All right, audience, we will check you out, and you will hear us in another week. Oh, my queen, said the royal sorcerer to Hatshepsut. With this amulet, you and your descendants are endowed by the goddess Isis with the powers of the animals and the elements. You will soar as the falcon soars, run with the speed of gazelles, and command the elements of sky and earth. 3,000 years later, a young science teacher dug up this lost treasure and found she was heir to the secrets of Isis. And so, unknown to even her closest friends, Rick Mason and Cindy Lee, she became a dual person, Andrea Thomas, teacher. Almighty oh, Isis. And Isis, dedicated foe of evil, defender of the weak, Champion of truth and justice. <laughs>